Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My lovely betwixters, it's me, Kate Lister. I am here once again with your fair dues warning. What is a fair dues warning, Kate? Well, it is the warning that we have to issue at the start of the show to let you know that it will be containing raunchy, adult and just downright naughty material. And if you don't want to listen to that, then this is your chance to back out now. And if you do listen to it and you're still shocked, well, tough tits, because fair dues, we did tell you it was going to be rude. <laughs> The teenage years, crushes, sleepovers, giggly science lessons and uh, some spots. Yeah, lots and lots of spots. Awkward conversations, endless homework and French kissing the back of your hand. We all have our own memories of these precious years. But do you remember the first time you ever thought about sex? Or the first time you spoke about it with somebody? Today we are going to find out how teenagers have historically talked about and experienced their sexualities, specifically since the mid-20th century. What do you look for in a man? Oh, money, of course. <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning a knob and pushing the button. <laughs> Yes, social courtesy does make a difference. Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness had nothing to do with it, dearie. Hello, and welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society with me, Kate Lister. By now, we've all heard of the American base system. Bases one to five. What Was it four? Did just I go to five? Right, sorry. Bases one to four, apparently. For teenagers, each step is an increased level of intimacy. And another thing to brag about, or maybe to hide from your friends. But before we inherited this points-based system in the UK, teenagers were already formulating ways of understanding and discussing their sexuality. Ways of measuring themselves against one another to check what their progress was. And for as long as there have been teenagers, there have been people worrying about teenagers. Today, I'm speaking to Hannah Charnock from the University of Bristol, who used mass observation records and spoke to people who were teenagers during the 20th century to find out what it was like to be developing during this time and how things might have changed. Let's go.
Hello and welcome to Betwixt the Sheets. It's only Hannah Charnock. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, yes. I'm so pleased to have you here. Is it horribly cold where you are? It is absolutely freezing where I am. Baltic. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, we will try and warm ourselves up (laughs) by discussing this particular subject. This is a really fascinating subject and it's one of those ones that like, we have to talk about it. It's important we talk about it, but it makes people very uncomfortable. Definitely. We are talking about teenage so my producer's written here teenage intimacy (laughs) i think probably what we mean is teenage sexuality in the 20th century yes i would say intimacy is important but quite a delicate way Mm. of phrasing some of the stuff that might come up yes yes so how did you come to research this how did you come to sort of think that this is a subject worth researching and and getting (laughs) and careful i phrase it but getting to grips with um well so Initially, I was supposed to be researching cultures of contraception after the mm-hmm. 1960s. So I was interested in what happens with contraception after the invention of the pill and how does the pill come to play such a large part in our sexual culture, I suppose. And I started doing this research and it turns out that studying contraception in the late 20th century is really hard, not least because it's very technical, looking at the different types of contraception that were available lots of those I suppose it would be yeah like lots of those their technologies and they're owned by companies and that as a historian is quite a difficult it's quite a difficult mm. thing to get access to so i was thinking about different ways that i could i could think about contraception and i'm a social historian so more than the technology and more than the medicine i'm interested in people and what contraception meant to people and so i thought i would do an oral history project so i thought i would my methodology would be that i would ask people about their use of contraception why wouldn't you obviously it's- that's that's amazing why <laughs> It's like it's one of those moments where it's kind of like, why haven't other people done this? This is so obvious. Yeah, and well, and other historians have done this for earlier time periods. There are some really wonderful studies on kind of contraceptive practice in the early 20th century. But it was almost like the invention of the pill was such a big watershed that nobody really wanted to deal with the afterwards. And so I started doing these oral history interviews And I just became more and more interested in almost the build-up to those conversations. So when you do oral histories, you don't just dive straight in and say, you know, tell me about the first time you ever used a condom. Do some preamble. You let people ease in, ease into the interviews. And so I would just ask people about like their living situations when they were growing up and the relationships that they were having as teenagers. That led into conversations about the sex that they were having as teenagers and the, the various sexual activities that they were engaging in and I just came to feel that actually this was the more like interesting part of the project for me I was interested in how do you get to the stage where you're having the kind of sex where you would need to use contraception (laughs) as a kind of long-winded way of putting that and it's it's so important because I've I've said it so many times and all anyone who studies the history of sex and yourself included knows that like the biggest barrier that you've got is first-hand accounts of sex throughout history. And it always skews the data because it's like, oh, you can go to the 18th century and you can find out what a doctor thought or a lawmaker or a priest. But that doesn't 
show us what was actually happening on the ground, how what were people were experiencing. That bit is always missing. Absolutely. And I was really lucky when I was doing my research in that because I was doing kind of late 20th century history or my research focuses on the period from the 1950s to the 1980s. So I'm interested in the lives of primarily of baby boomers. And what that means is that there were two really great kind of source bases available to me when I wanted to do this research. So the first, as I said, was oral history. So lots of people of this generation are still alive and they are interested in talking about their lives. And so, yeah, I could conduct a research project where I interviewed them and I asked them questions about their sexual lives and their sexual histories. But the other really important resource for me were testimonies that were collected as part of the mass observation project. So Mass Observation is a social research organisation. It was founded in the late 1930s. And in its original iteration, it was quite anthropological. So they would send kind of professional observers out into the world and they would, you know, stand on street corners or, you know, sit in the pub and they would watch what people were doing and listened into people's conversations as a way of trying to, you know, understand what was society like in the 1930s. It became really important during World War II. And in that time period, the diaries that we have of people on the home front during World War II were submitted as part of mass observation. And they would send these questionnaires out asking people, you know, how do you feel about the fall of France or the Blitz in your city and things. And in the mid 20th century, it fades from view, it disappears. But in 1981, it was reborn as, again, like a social research organisation that was interested in trying to capture the lives of ordinary people and everyday life. So there are a couple, like several hundred, a couple of thousand mass observers. They're volunteers from, from all over the country. And they just observe us. Yeah. And a couple of times a year, mass observation sends them a kind of questionnaire type thing about a whole range of like it can be on absolutely anything so sometimes it's the questionnaires are on really contemporary things so for example in the last couple of years the questionnaires have asked people to record their thoughts and feelings about covid and about brexit and about elections and other things going on in the world but often alongside those very contemporary questions they'll ask people slightly broader questions and in 2005 one of the directives that the questionnaires was specifically on sex and it asked mass observers to like record their sexual life history moving from their very early years all the way through into adulthood and for me as a historian of kind of sexual life that was an amazing resource like we've got people just writing down their experiences of sex and sexuality and how they felt and I you know have never seen another source base like it it's absolutely wonderful one of the things I think is really interesting about this is you often hear that like teenagers were invented in the 1950s which is quite a broad sweeping statement and like and of course there were people were teenagers but this is more like the sort of the social idea of what a teenager is is that true do you think well historians kind of go round and round debating whether or not this mm. was true so the term teenager enters public knowledge, public use in that post-war period, so in the kind of 1950s. And I think it is fair to say that the conditions in post-war Britain and also, you know, post-war, post-war everywhere in the world created new 
experiences for being a young person. So Mm. in Britain, for example, by the time you reach the mid-1950s, we're in this period of what we term post-war affluence. So there's an economic boom. It's very easy for young people to get jobs. They have much more disposable income than they ever had in previous generations. And then when you combine in that the creation of the welfare state, mean and the kind of the expansion of schooling, so the raising of the school leaving age, plus the fact, I mean, that you have this baby boom generation. So the literal number of teenagers or young people in the population is just like much bigger and it becomes known as the bulge and as this generation grows up you can see them moving through the population so the baby boom generation is the generation of young people born between the end of world war ii and over the next decade or so and you can almost trace the political debates that emerge responding to this big bulge in the population. Mm. So as this group of young people are about to enter education, suddenly this is a big topic for public debate. As you were saying, it's not as if teenagers don't exist. And lots of parts of the culture that we associate with the 1950s teenager, so going out Mm. to dances, going to the cinema, all of that kind of thing, that existed in previous time periods. But the figure of the teenager as an important demographic in society definitely becomes more prominent from the 1950s. I always thought that the baby boomers generation were called that because they were the ones that had lots of babies. But is that not right? They are the produce of a generation that had lots of babies yes they are the be- like oh, they are the babies yeah they are the babies of the other people boomed and they're the babies like, precisely yes right every day's a school day isn't it hannah right this makes more sense okay so now we have to get to the nitty-gritty the good stuff yeah. about what your research found out so let's start with something like what sort of age were people becoming sexually active Yeah, late 20th century. So we're really lucky that for the mid-20th century, through surveys such as the National Surveys of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles, we actually have a fairly good run of data to track the age that people had sex for the first time. So as you might expect, the data suggests that the age that people had sex for the first time, decreased over the course of the 20th century. So for people born in the 1920s, on average, they had sex for the first time when they were around 18, 19. For people who were born in the 1950s and 60s, that average was about 17. And for people in the 1990s, the age was 16. Average age was 16. Now, obviously, that, that average accounts for a fair amount of variation. But another like interesting way that we can think about this is, so across the 20th century, the age of consent for heterosexual sex was 16. And one of the things that these surveys indicate is that whereas only 4% of women who were born in the 1930s had sex before they were 16, women born in the 1990s, almost 30% of them had sex before they were 16. So that's quite a big jump. So although the difference in average age seems quite incremental, you know, the difference is only two years, 16 and 18. Accounting for the variation, the extremes, I suppose, surrounding that average, there is quite a big jump in that people are having, a significant proportion of people are having sex much younger by the late 20th century than was the case earlier. 
Wow. Another thing that all sex historians, all historians have to deal with is the use of language that was appropriate at the time. This is like, this is a big, big issue. Like if you are researching sex work in the 19th century and you try and keyword search sex work in a newspaper, you will not get very far. You have to find the language that they are using. So if you say to someone, how old were you when you first had sex? Then we have to try and define, well, what do you mean by sex? Like, are we is that penetrative heterosexual sex or are we counting fingering? Like what is... Yeah, so this is a, this is a big thing in my research. I mean, in some ways... I suppose along the same lines as in contemporary society, actually, most people, if you ask them, when did you have sex for the first time, they will assume that you mean penis and vagina penetrative mm. sex. Like That is the assumption. And there's a re- like, you know, there are really interesting stories to tell about the other forms of sexual activity that young people were engaging in. But in terms of like language, if you say sex, they assume you mean penis in vagina and to get at the other forms of sexual activity you end up having to use phrases such as my favorite heavy petting <laughs> i think i remember that from a swimming pool sign. exactly yes <laughs> yeah and once you use that language that describes a slightly different set of practices is that something that you figured out straight away or did it was there a sort of a trial and an error situation here so The way that it tended to work in my interviews was that I, so we would do the preamble, we would talk about people's living situations growing up and the types of relationships that they had as teenagers. And then usually the way that it would work is that I would ask them about the first time that they had sex and they would give me a virginity story usually. And once we'd told that, they'd told that story, I would then usually ask whether or not that was the first type of sexual activity that they had engaged in or whether or not there had, you know, they had done anything else before that. And at that point, we would then get stories of other forms of sexual activity, such as handjobs, fingering, dry humping, other forms of stimulation. Oh, memories. (laughs) But one of the things that people found really difficult in the interviews is precisely this problem of language, because those types of activities, the language that you... It's difficult, isn't it? In a clinical setting. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I like to think that my interviews aren't clinical, you know, and they're not. And no, they're... you are a delight to talk <laughs> to. But but it is a slightly odd dynamic. It's not medical. So, for example, if you look at medical texts about these types of activities, they use phrases such as genital apposition, which Jesus Christ, no, nobody would ever. <laughs> I wouldn't even know what that is. Use that in a in a sentence. <laughs> Will you apposition my genitals? Sure, please? exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but at the same time. You know, so when I was conducting these interviews, I was in my kind of mid to late 20s. Lots of the people that I was interviewing were in their, you know, 60s. They don't want to use the language of fingering and handjobs. Particularly when I was interviewing men, they would find this conversation really difficult because all of the language that they have, I suppose we would consider to be quite crass. You know, it's kind of bantery. Mm language. And so in lots of ways, the language of petting and heavy petting became, it's the safe word. But then it meant that as an interviewer, I was then having to ask much more specific questions by, okay, so by heavy petting, what body parts are doing what 
capture what other body parts? You can get like hand puppets involved. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Show me where on the doll this happened. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so like that issue of language was really tricky and I don't want to be providing them with language you know i don't want to no because then you skew the data exactly. set don't you so that became it became a bit of a dance in the interviews of trying to you know figure out exactly what people meant by these different terms i'll be back with hannah after this short break i'm tristan hughes host of the ancients from history hit where twice a week, every week, we delve into our ancient past. I'm joined by leading experts, academics and authors who share incredible stories from our distant history and shine a light on some of antiquity's great questions. Was the Oracle of Delphi really able to see into the future? What can be discovered from lost civilizations? And was King Arthur actually real? You can expect all of this and more from the Ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. system of bases help like i don't think that was a thing in britain for a while like we saw it in movies and stuff and it took a while as i was growing up to go one two three right okay but like did, did that help bases so for this generation so this baby boomer post-war generation bases weren't really a thing but right. they did and it comes through in the testimonies that at the time as teenagers young people of this generation did have kind of classification systems. So lots of them described having Ooh. had 
a ranking system and the ranking systems varied so some of them were like one to five others were one to ten it would always like the final one your five or your ten was always penetrative sex like that was the thing that everything else was building towards and then other forms of sexual activity would fit somewhere else in the ranking and one of the things that's really interesting is that the rankings weren't all the same. The rankings weren't consistent. So in the ranking systems, you would usually get the general direction of travel would be from things like hand-holding and a peck on the cheek through to kissing, French kissing, snogging, kissing with tongues. And then there would be some kind of touching usually of the breasts and then kind of genital touching of some kind would be on the hierarchy. But the exact nature of where things were on the hierarchy differed from person to person. It seems that like different schools, different communities had slightly different ranking systems. So it was fairly consistent that people would differentiate between above the waist and below the waist. So above the waist was seen to be lower down the hierarchy than below the waist, which got you closer to your penetrative sex. But that in some communities, the key distinction was whether or not this touching was taking place above the clothes or below the clothes. So you would have kind of breast touching Ah. over the clothes, then breast touching under the clothes, and then, you know, genital touching over the clothes. Yeah, and like dry humping, I guess, through to genital touching under the clothes. Whereas for other people, the hierarchy also, or alternatively sometimes, the key difference was whether or not you were giving or receiving. So whether or not you were the active party or not. Okay. And that that was often quite gendered. So you'd often, so men in particular often stressed the difference between touching and being touched. Um, quite a lot of men of this generation expressed a degree of, let's say, sadness that actually when they were teenagers, their girlfriends, their female partners often were less inclined to do touching and that they might make it all the way up the hierarchy to penetrative sex without ever having for example, received a hand job. That's as much as a number three or four. Yeah, exactly. So the hierarchies are, historians talk about sex as being socially constructed. And this is a really interesting mm. example. You've got this range of sex acts that people, they understand them to be different levels of sex in different places, wow. in different communities. And one of the most interesting things that I found while I was doing this research is, so people would describe these hierarchies to me. And one of the things that I started to notice was that oral sex didn't really feature in these hierarchies. No, really? Like, are we blowjobs, cunnilingus, or the whole thing? The whole thing. Like, nobody really really mentioned oral sex at all. Was that not a thing? Well, after I'd had a couple of these interviews, I was like, is it... I wondered whether it was just that people were particularly uncomfortable about saying that and talking about... So I thought, maybe I should try asking directly to Mm. just see whether this is something that people were fudging in their narratives like in their interviews okay or whether this is actual history yeah so i started asking people in interviews and one of the things that came out in their testimonies was people would say well 
no, like oral sex would not have been something that we ever considered doing before we had penetrative sex. And lots of women in particular identified that as far as but when they were younger, when they were teenagers in particular, they understood oral sex to be a much more intimate, like in some ways, much more profound and kind of serious sexual act wow. than penetrative sex. And therefore, there was never any expectation that they would... Engage. I mean, many people had never even heard of it as teenagers. That it was more intimate. Yeah, that they that that would be something that maybe you would do with a partner when you were married and had been with them for a really, really long time, but that it wasn't. Yeah, it just wasn't part of this kind of pre-penetrative sexual hierarchy. That's fascinating. Which is obviously a huge, like hugely different to contemporary sexual cultures where oral sex has been to a great extent normalised and now if you look at the ways in which young people in contemporary society construct these sexual hierarchies, oral sex almost always features before penetrative sex. That's fascinating. I've just remembered now that there was a whole big thing on sex work Twitter within the last few years, and I had learned something new about it. They were talking about how the one thing that they absolutely hate, not everybody, hashtag not everyone, if no one's listening and panicking, but there was a real strong vocal consensus that receiving cunnilingus from a client was dreadful. The thing that was coming back from that was like, exactly like you said there, it's almost like it's too intimate. We need to research this further. People need to, to research and look into this. But I always remember that, looking at it thinking, that's really interesting. Of all the sex acts, that's the one that uh, sort of has got this huge reaction from it. Yeah, and... So like you say, actually, the history of oral sex is very poorly understood. It's not necessarily something that, yeah, we have a wealth of historical knowledge about, mainly because it's really hard to research it. But I think the sense that I got from my testimonies is that part of the question of intimacy here is to do with how people feel about their bodies and the one thing I think we need to remember when we're talking about teenage sex in particular is that the very nature of teenage sex means that people are not, you know, spending an afternoon in their bedroom, taking lots of time undressing one another, spending lots of time around one another naked, like really taking their time to, you know, really celebrate one another. That is very true, actually. That teenage sex was often very furtive. It wasn't necessarily being done at home in a bedroom. People were engaging in sexual activities, so both penetrative sex and, you know, all of these other kind of sexual activities. Quite rushed, frantic. Yeah, and you know, on the sofa when your parents have gone to bed, in corridors or in dark corners of, like, dances or nightclubs. It's, you know, we all joke about behind-the-bike sheds, but actually there's an element of truth to that. No one's growling at the badger behind the bike shed, do they? <laughs> <laughs> or like, and the other big place, like outdoors, people talk about like being in parks or like that they would euphemistically go for walks with their partners. And then cars were really important space for teenagers having sex because they were relatively private. You could drive them to a place that you knew was secluded. There are ways in which you can organise them so that you can't be seen. But all of this means that lots of young people, and even those who are engaging in penetrative sex, would do so without necessarily ever having seen a fully naked body. 
without necessarily ever having seen, you know, their partner naked. That makes sense. And particularly if you think about the kind of 1950s and 60s, like women's clothing was that women wore dresses and stockings and suspenders all the time. Which are fiddly as fuck, despite their super sexy reputation. Yeah, but it means that it's not as if you're having to, you know, fully take off your trousers and underwear in order to have sex. So we think some of this is about... Cunnilingus in particular, in got to have your face up. You in do, there. and if you are having sex in cars, that is particular. You'd have to have one leg out the sunroof and another one out the driver's side. That's yes, that makes perfect and in, sense. You now know, you cars from the nineteen sixties not necessarily designed to. They're not designed for that. For that, they are not. No. I don't know if any cars are designed for that, but in my book, they should be. <laughs> what about same sex sex in in your research like how was this did you speak to sort of men that had sex with men women that had sex with women and how did they understand these first early debuts into the world of sex so most of my research focused primarily upon heterosexual sex but one of the things that's really interesting is the really complicated place that queer sex where queer sex fits within those life histories So, for example, I wouldn't say it was common, but it certainly wasn't uncommon or unheard of that the men that I would interview would describe having engaged in some kind of same-sex activity. So, particularly those who had been at boarding schools or in other kind of Mm. institutions would describe instances where they'd... um, wank each other off, for example. For young women, one of the things that was really interesting is that often within their narratives, they wouldn't necessarily describe huge amounts of sexual activity with one another. Although women would describe how as teenagers, they would sometimes practice kissing with other girls, but that wasn't seen to be sexual. That was about, they are practicing to do these activities with boys. But there was this really interesting phenomenon that several women described of crushes and a crush for women of this generation was often like young women would often have these about older girls. So, for example, you know, if you're at school and you're in one of the lower years, it might be a girl who's several years older than you, like maybe in the sixth form. And that really interesting, they used to have crushes together. So it wasn't just about you as an individual having a crush on somebody older, but that this is something that you would kind of talk to your friends about and you would have crushes together. You'd have like a collective crush on somebody who was slightly older. And again, like with women, they were often quite at pains to stress that this wasn't sexual. It wasn't about saying that, you know, you fantasised about having sex with that person Mm. but it was this kind of strong emotional feeling sometimes romantic sometimes not quite it would like this it would sit in a slightly funny space where they couldn't quite work out what it meant so yeah like that was like that was quite sweet one of the things that my research shows is that particularly in that mid 20th century period there was still very much this sense that queer feelings and queer experiences in adolescence were it's all just a phase it was understood to be yes you know part of this you're growing up you've got hormones running through you're developing psychologically you've got a lot of feelings and you've got to process them and particularly for young women the idea often was simply that eventually your womb would kick in You know, eventually your innate desire to have babies would mean that you would get over this 
Right. And want to have sex with men so that you could fulfil your biological destiny of having children. Yes, yes. If you listen very quietly, you can hear lesbians laughing about that. (laughs) Did you get a sense of where people were learning about sex at this period in history? Because, like, now, obviously, there's compulsory sex education, which isn't great, but it's there. And there's, you know, a wealth of books and things that you can use. But, like, what about... Before that, before the internet, how were people learning about sex? So a variety of a variety of different ways. So in this time period, school-based sex education was not compulsory, but plenty of women or and men described that they did receive some form of sex education, insofar as they would many people had would still take like I guess the equivalent of religious studies and so they might get some form of sexual instruction in that context by far the most common one was biology lessons so people would talk about learning dissecting frogs learning about the reproductive system of rabbits and that there would often be some kind of vague reference made to like oh well now you've learned this about rabbits this is this <laughs> is how it works in people too <laughs> So, so there's a few there's a few gaps in that. Sure. Yeah. So some people did like there was some offering at school. Something that I've been working on really recently is that in the mid 20th century, you get the rise of facts of life literature. So this is, you know, literature that is sometimes produced by invested organisations. So like churches and religious organisations publish facts of life books, medical professionals, psychologists, the Family Planning Association produces some. The Girl Guides mm-hmm. produce some amazing facts of life. Really? Um, the guides did it? Yeah. That was a bad job. Uh, <laughs> which is all, you know, it's all designed to, like, how can we ensure that the young people go on to lead healthy lives? And so a fair number of people, and particularly young women, would describe having been given this type of literature, particularly in the run-up, like, as they entered their teenage years and it was predicted that they would start their periods so lots of people described you know like that these would just be books left at the end of the bed they'd be told to kind of read them but then there was never any expectation really that you would have a conversation about this no so i think we need it's not that adults were completely opposed to telling young people about sex actually you know lots of people thought that young people did need to be educated about sex and you know Mm. there were some lessons in some schools about reproduction, about sexual health in fairly vague terms. And like I say, there are, there's this new genre of literature that emerges and that is written by adults and is given to young people by adults. But the nature of this sex education, in terms <clears> of its <throat> coverage, quite biological. And the innate assumption in all of this is that sex revolves around marriage. And that even for those people right. who are thinking about having sex before they get married, they need to understand sex and they need to manage their sexual lives carefully so that they don't create problems for themselves in marriage. So lots of the discussion, like I say, it's very biological and yet it's very focused on the relationship. Like what might sex mean for your relationship and yourself Mm. moving forward? And what this means is that there is a kind of gap between the types of questions that adults are answering for young people and the questions that young people have themselves. Mm-hmm. And that what you kind of see in this period is that for young teenagers, so when you're in your kind of 12 or 13, what you want to know is you just want to know where this, how this works. You know, like you want to know where babies come right. from. Like, yeah. and you want to understand yeah. why it is that your mummy's got a big 
big tummy and people keep telling you that a baby's gonna come out you want to know why your body's changing why you've got hair growing in places that you didn't have hair growing but that as teenagers were moving into their late teenage years 15 16 17 that kind of abstract knowledge that knowledge in theory about where babies come from becomes kind of less important than knowing how does sex work how do you do it like what does it feel like and so for that information teenagers turn to each other and adults you know like particularly by the late 1960s 1970s are extremely concerned about this they think this is just a breeding ground for misinformation that teenagers getting all kinds of bad information that they this is where lots of the myths come around they're concerned that high rates of illegitimacy and venereal disease are coming from the fact that young people they don't fully understand how you get pregnant from sexual activity so adults are very concerned about this but for young people themselves often this knowledge that they get from their mates is the most important type of sexual knowledge that they receive at all. It's the most important type of sex education that they receive. And that one of the things you find in the mid-20th century is that it becomes much more common practice for young people to talk to one another about their sex lives. So this is where you get the stories of, you know, how far did you go? Yeah, and, you know, there's always one person in your school who had sex with a load of supermodels and at the time you believed it and it was just complete gibberish. Yeah, I remember all of that. Oh, Hannah, you've been amazing to talk to. And I could honestly, I could keep going. I've got so many questions, but I'm going to have to wrap this up. But one of the things I do want to know is when you were conducting this research, like I can't imagine the ethics process, the committee that you must have gone through to be allowed to do this. But what was, from a researcher's point of view, and it sounds like you found out so much information, but what was the experience like for you as a historian to go and talk to all these people and, and be told these stories? Because they're quite intimate well are very intimate stories and sex by its nature is inherently personal and even when I talk about the history of sex people often disclose very personal things to me either in person or via email and and it can sometimes feel like quite a heavy thing to to take on like I know this about this person what was this process like for you on this huge scale of gathering this information it was quite mixed I think so there's a part of me that thinks sometimes we're a bit precious about sex And that actually we assume that other people are more precious about sex than they actually are. And, you know, I think one thing in particular that was helpful to my research is studying the period that I do. So in particular, the 1960s, there's this big narrative, there's this big story that people tell about sexual culture in the 1960s. So this idea of the sexual revolution or the permissive society Mm. in the 1960s. And One of the things that that meant was that lots of my interviewees, they were aware of that concept. You know, it's in the press all of the time. Any time anybody talks about sex in the 20th century, they'll talk about the 1960s and the sexual revolution. And that gave them something to work off. So one of the things that would happen is that, so some people wanted to talk to me because they see themselves as the embodiment of the sexual revolution. So they were having sex at 15. They were taking part in orgies all over swinging London. You know, they want to put their story on the record as part of that like big historical moment. They see themselves as part of that 
that change. But there are other people. So in particular, so I conducted this research as part of my PhD, which I did at the University of Exeter. So most of the people that I was interviewing had come to live in Devon. And many of them had lived in Devon their entire lives. And part of their motivation for speaking to me was that for them, it was about setting the record straight. It was about saying, you know, here is this big story that everybody tells about sex in the 1960s. And I'm here to tell you that in rural Devon, it wasn't like that at all. (laughs) And so they had... Like their motivation for speaking was quite different. And I think, you know, sometimes we worry about researching sex, that what you get is a kind of bias towards only sex positive people want to talk about sex. You know, only people Mm. who are super comfortable and open about sexuality want to talk to you about sex. But my experience is that that's not true. People came to talk to me who had, you know, fairly ambivalent attitudes to sexuality. And for lots of people, this was just a kind of, slightly amusing way to spend two hours on a Tuesday afternoon talking to this PhD researcher about some stuff that they'd probably not thought about for a while. So in some cases, it wasn't particularly heavy. And I think we should be careful of somehow giving researching sex a more heightened status than researching, Mm. you know, other parts of history. Good point. The flip side of that, though, was I was conducting my research in the mid-2010s and I submitted my thesis about a week, two weeks before the Harvey Weinstein story broke and Me Too kind of went viral. And one of the things that was heavy in the research was the sheer level of sexual assault and harassment and coercion that came through in women's testimonies. And that was something that I think I had known, like if you had sat me down and asked me to think about it, I would have said, yes, I think this may be a theme that might come up in my research. And for the ethics Mm. approval, I'd had to indicate, you know, what I would do if people, you know, were were to give disclosures about sexual violence. But it was all quite hypothetical. I, again, this is kind of pre-Me Too movement. Mm. Like, and the second interview I did, someone disclosed having been raped. And that didn't get any easier across the you know years that I was doing the research. And it was quite tricky because people have very different feelings about those experiences. And beyond the individual experiences about the culture itself. So in terms of thinking about cultures of coercion, for example, you know, one of the themes that comes out of this research into teenage sexuality in the 50s, 60s and 70s is that there was still very much this idea that boys, young men, would be the ones who, if we understand sexual activity to be on this hierarchy that builds towards penetrative sex, Mm. that it was young men who like the man in the relationship who would be the person pushing from one stage to the next and that the only way that you would move up the hierarchy is because your boyfriend or your kind of male sexual partner would be the one to kind of indicate that this is what we're kind of doing now so this culture of boys try girls deny was like underpinned these sexual cultures And for some women, they found this problematic, like looking back on their lives from middle age, you know, in the early 21st century, as they would be telling me stories about their sexual lives, they would articulate that actually this feels quite uncomfortable. This seems quite, you know, this, lots of them would Mm. say, you know, this isn't what I would want for my children or for my grandchildren. 
And yet others were very much of the mindset that that was just the culture. And that's just how sex, that's just how teenage sex works. So as a historian, that was quite difficult to navigate. You know, there were things that to me felt quite heavy, but potentially they didn't Mm. to them. And making sure that you're not projecting your own set of values and your own feelings about the past onto your interviewees. Like, that could be really hard. Hannah, you have just been fascinating to talk to. Thank you so much. And if people want to know more about you and your research, where can they find you? So I am a lecturer at the University of Bristol. So you can Google me and find me there. And there you can find some links to blogs and articles that I've written. Thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about this today. You have been an absolute revelation. It's been an absolute pleasure, Kate. Thank you for listening. And if you like what you've heard, please don't forget to like, review and subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Join me again, Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex, scandal and society, a podcast by History Hit. This podcast includes music by Epidemic Sounds. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.